Um, for me, Cyborg Pride is about having agency over your identity and using technology uh, in a way that assists that agency. We fit the fittest minds with the chip inside You can link and digitize that which Prior to this was higher than science could ever devise This is a neural interface We're gonna stick it in your face Till it in your brain and interlace There's an arms war on and we're gonna win the race Leave everything a race, bring the base Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Now, this is a special edition of DMP Tonight, a recording of a panel at Body Hacking Convention, This, and we're sharing this as a recap of great information that was presented, and also as a special reminder, because that same team behind Body Hacks also puts on an information security conference called InfoSec Southwest. Now this year, it'll be occurring very soon, April 7th through 9th in Austin, Texas. For more information and tickets, please go to InfoSecSouthwest.com. Now we look forward to seeing you there at the great talks and panels, Expo Floor, the Lockpick Village, as well as Capture the Flag competition. But also the scavenger hunt, which has led to many lasting memory and yes, tattoos. But so again, check them out because this team sure knows how to put on not only a good party, but also a good convention. And that is definitely InfoSecSouthwest.com. Take a look, get some tickets. It's coming soon, and we hope to see you there. But before we share this, we want to thank our sponsor, Dangerous Things, who delivers cushion gadgetry for the discerning hacker and biohacker. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. If you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of Dangerous Minds podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at DangerousMinds.io and email us at info at dangerousminds.io, and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. Hello there, and welcome to uh, our last panel of the day. Uh, this panel will be on cyborg pride and identity, and um, the panel's uh, going to be facilitated by Rich McKinnon, and uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm very, very pleased that I'm going to hand it over to Rich, who's going to introduce the panel, which I am on, and uh, it's not my problem anymore. <laughs> but um, I am very excited to be talking with Rich and Neil about Cyborg Pride. Come on out and let's give everyone a hand. Hi, welcome to the panel on Cyborg Pride and Identity. And uh, I'm Rich McKinnon, and I'm the founder and executive director of BorgFest, uh, which is a uh, festival for cyborgs. And uh, you all have met Neil before. He uh, did the keynote on Saturday. And he is uh, the founder of the Cyborg Foundation, among many other things. But uh, I'm going to call that particular title out because Cyborg Foundation is, uh, was established to fight for the rights for cyborgs, which I think is very germane to the, today's talk. And again, he does way more than that, but that's what uh, is uh, relevant right now. And then uh, Quinn Norton has been our fabulous master of ceremonies the whole weekend. And uh, is this the first panel you're actually serving on? Yes. Yes, that's right. All right. So uh, Quinn has a, a deep background in uh, body hacking. And maybe you, did you coin the term or is that credited to you? I, I did. Yeah. I, I, th I think it was, uh, it was generated by a few people independently. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I coined the term um, in response to the life hacking movement. Awesome. And you also have uh, an academic background in human identity, which is 
perfectly suited for today's conversation, right? Looking forward to it. Awesome. All right. Well, let's kind of get started on, you know, um, why, what is Cyborg Pride and, um, and how does it relate to other kinds of pride that for, we are familiar with? Um, and I'll start off with you, Quinn. Uh, why don't you kind of chime in on what do you think Cyborg Pride it is and how it relates to other kinds of pride? So the, the concept of a cyborg is one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and probably use more widely than most people. Um, for me, cyborg pride is about having agency over your identity and using technology uh, in a way that assists that agency. Um, right now, I would say I think the biggest cyborg pride issue uh, going in the world is uh, access to birth control, women's access to women's health issues. And a lot of people don't think of that as a, a, a cyborgian issue, but it's profoundly cyborgian for me to have control over fertility that nature didn't give me, and I've decided to take. Um, and very few technologies at all have done more to uh, revolutionize the world as women's birth control has done. And we're all kind of trying to live in that post-birth control world now and understand what that means. And sometimes in that, we kind of lose sight. It's become a baseline issue. One of the things I identified very early on in my research is that we think of things as cyborg and out there until a certain point of acceptance when they just become normal. Uh, you know, it used to be that dying of childhood illnesses was normal. Now, vaccination is kind of considered a human right to, to most people. Well, that's not normal. That's not nature's baseline. Nature's baseline is you have lots of kids. You have six kids in hopes of keeping three. Uh, and I would much rather not live in nature's baseline. I like to say I'm 42 and I have all my teeth, and that's not natural, but I'm going with it. <laughs> and, um, and similarly, having that control over my identity that comes out of getting to say when a human being comes out of my vagina um, is one of the most fundamental cyborg rights issues there is, or there could be. Um, I think there's a lot more after that. There's a lot more so around. So let's back it up there. Sorry. All right. No, it's great because I think Neil and I, based on earlier conversations, completely are on the same page there. But I'm not sure if everybody in the room necessarily gets the connection between cyborg rights and a, woman, a woman's right to choose over her own health issues. So can you kind of spell that out a little bit more? I think it comes back to that discussion of agency. It's um, using technology to make myself into the person I want to be and wanting to be proud of that. One of the reasons I love the word pride there is because in much of the world and through much of time, a woman who wants control over sex is a slut mm -hmm. or a harlot or something else that's horrible. I don't want to be horrible. I want that power and I want that agency and I'm going to get that through chemical, mechanical, technological means. I've had several different forms of birth control inserted into me and I can't think of what would be more cyborgian than that. It's an implant in, that, yeah. in essence, right? Okay, so a cyborg then, at least philosophically, is a human being, well, we can have animal cyborgs, but we'll say human, a human being who is deciding to take control of their body and control their processes or their fertility processes, their birth um, 
um, we'll just leave it at fertility processes and using any technologies necessary to control the processes. I think one of the interesting things you've put in there mm -hmm. that I, I want to like push back and complicate good, for good, a second good, good. is um, who decides. Because we also are often subject to policies that you could say make people into cyborgs. Perfect. Which they may or may not be willing to do. No, you're right. I agree. I stipulate that point, Counselor. <laughs> okay. So, Neil, why don't you chime in a little bit on cyborg pride. Are you proud to be a cyborg? Are you a cyborg? Um, yes, I feel cyborg, but I guess it's more of a, um, as we've, we've mentioned, the control of the body through technology, but in my case, it's more the control of the mind. So it's more how we can uh, use technology to extend our perception of reality or to modify our mind or how technology can can um, modify our brains in a way. And in a way, that's the way I feel cyborg. It's more of a psychological thing or, uh, I mean, physically or biologically, there is cybernetics in my body, but actually what really affected me was the union between the software and the brain that created this new sense or perception extension. So I guess we'll see that there's different types of people identifying as cyborg for different reasons. One might be more of a, for biological reasons, uh, others might be more psychological and others might, might be more neurological even. Yeah, that, that was actually part of your, your talk, those three reasons, right? Yes, I think right? the, yeah. mostly there's the three different types, I think. Now, do you think it's possible that someone, for example, could become a cyborg for psychological reasons, like you said, but at the same time reject the notion of a cyborg identity? Yes. It's, okay. Yes. So talk about that a little bit, because I asked you if you are proud to be a cyborg, does that mean um, that you are unified neurologically, physically, and psychologically, and also accept the cyborg identity? Yes, so there's, in my case, yes, but the, I've met many people that are biological cyborgs but do not identify themselves as cyborgs or people that have no cybernetics, no intervention of cybernetics in their body, but they identify themselves as cyborgs. Um, so there's different uh, situations, I guess. We, we find more and more emails from children emailing us saying that they identify themselves as cyborgs and that their body does not correspond to that. That's why they want implants to extend their perception or they want new senses uh, in their body because they feel that they are cyborgs, yet that's why they need surgery to have these uh, new... So let's talk about that. So um, apparently children will find Neil's work online and then write to him and they're expressing their, I guess, their, their sadness that they are not cyborgs. Is that right? Yeah, maybe not particularly they see my work, but they, they, I guess they, they've grown up surrounded by technology. They feel that technology is such a part of their lives and their um, mind that they feel that they, sh they should be technology, not use it or wear it, but actually be technology, and they feel that their body does not have the technology that it should have. So that's the kind of feeling that there's more and more am amount of uh, teenagers and children emailing us about this subject, that they feel cyborg and that that's why they want to have a... Um, cybernetics or electronics in their body. So why don't you follow up? That's pretty fascinating, children. It is. Yeah. One of the things I've discovered in the course of interviewing many people uh, is that there is a kind of fetish for breaking the skin. Um, I, I, there's, uh, I mean, I, I think there's a really good argument to be made that anyone with a cell phone 
and the capacity to use it has really crossed the line between being just a human and a machine to being a human machine system. Um, and uh, that fetish for breaking the skin, I think, is a lot about separation from other people, like trying to cross a line for identity. And you see that in a lot of identity markers. Um, and it's also, I think, a way people want to convey commitment. I, I think, I'm not saying a fetish to break the skin is good or bad, but that a lot of it is about saying, I just want to show the world that I'm willing to go far. I'm, I'm willing to commit. And breaking the skin is a way of committing. Um, it, going back to the kind of smartphone example, you know, we do see that these uh, changes of habit become changes of mind, become psychological cyborganism, uh, as well as physical, um, on all sorts of levels, positive and negative. Of course, this is, this is like all of you know, Kranzberg's technology. Technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. Um, I think that point about really wanting to kind of become more of a cyborg, um, and, that, and going back to the point of pride, is that feeling of not having rights, not being well represented. I mean, I, I've done a lot of work in the queer community, and one of the reasons we focus on pride in the queer community is because we're trying to counter a really negative story that's told about us. I mean, if you're normal in a way, you don't need pride. I mean, that's, you know, I'm, I'm stretching the word sure. there. But, um, but pride is a way of pushing back on, on the negatives. Uh, and that kind of gets into some really interesting questions about where we're getting the idea of authentic humans, uh, which I think we end up tangling up with really fast here. Possibly those kids are tangling up with too. So what, what can cyborgs learn from the queer community? Oh, I think a lot. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, what, what, what are some of those things? Um, a lot more, I think, about, uh, I think the queer community's done a really good job of learning about self-care and prioritizing self-care in a way that I haven't seen as much in the body hacker community. Um, and really, like, there is, there is a dynamic in the queer community of go to the extremes and prove that you belong. And it can get really toxic, but the recognition of that over the years has created kind of support systems where people are like, you're queer, you don't have to prove it. You know, just be yourself. You don't have to do self-harm activities to be queer enough. Um, and I do think that there's a lot more egging on in the cyborg-identified communities and less self-care. And they could learn that, I think, from, from the queer movements. Right. Neil, have you ever been to a gay pride parade? Yes. yes. Yeah. So do you think that cyborgs will someday have a cyborg pride parade? Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, if you organize it, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Who would go to a cyborg pride parade? Look, right. wow. There, there, we were worried about <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Okay. We'll meet you here in a year. All right. <laughs> but yeah, um, I think there's many parallelisms also with the bioethics committees that we, we face now with cyborg surgeries. That the reasons why bioethical committees say no are there is a parallelism with uh, transgender surgeries in the 50s and 60s, why they would say no as well. In the, they say that it's not necessary, for example. In my case, they said it was not necessary to perceive uh, ultraviolet and infrared. In some cases, they would say it was not necessary to change uh, gender. Also, it, it says, um, they said it 
they were worried about the possible dangers of having this inside the head or doing the surgery was a bit, they, would, they were worried about the unknown and also they were worried about the image the hospital would have if someone would come out with an antenna sticking out of the head in the same way that back then they would think that what would people think if a man came in and came out as a woman or the other way around and about the image of the hospital as well. So we, I feel a, a close, close parallelisms with the bioethical committees um, yeah, I, I do think, though, the other side of that is that um, uh, there's a lot less emphasis appropriately on gender reassignment surgery and trans identity, and that's really positive because there's a lot of people who really don't want to. It's a very physically traumatic process, and there's a lot of people who don't want to go through that, and that doesn't make them not trans. That makes them people who don't want to go through an invasive surgery. Yes, I think that's an important point, I, and I don't know if we've really... Um, established the, the, the point here, so I'll, I'll say it. The, um, it's my belief, and I believe I share this with y'all, is that transgendered people today embody personally so many of the technologies that we have to bear to make someone a cyborg. Prosthetics, implants, transplants, cosmetic surgery, a whole host of pharmaceutical support, all of these things to you have the agency to change their body to better integrate with the identity they have. It's a, basically a full body prosthetic augmentation enhancement. So that's a transgendered person. And, and constructed socially and also to right. give props to the tattoo community, right. which has blazed a lot of ground there and also blazed a lot of ground around pride and legal issues. Um, Dr. Yin Thompson's talk was fantastic for looking at the difficulties of working while a modified person, and that really does extend to cyborgs and cyborg-identified people. That's right. So that, you know, it's interesting because you made two points that were almost uh, at odds with each other, but I love that because it just shows the, the nuances of the conversation. Earlier, you were talking about almost like communities of breaking the flesh, right? And then we're talking about how transgendered people today are not being pressured to break the flesh, that you can be trans without surgery, and that's okay too. And I think that's important to realize that you don't need to necessarily break the flesh to be a cyborg either, right? So, um, like I came out when I was 30, I, I'm, I'm, I'm gay. And I'm wondering, like, is there a coming out process for cyborgs? There has to be, right? Like, you, we talked just a few minutes ago about some people who don't identify as cyborgs, although we may recognize them as such. It's not for us to say you're a cyborg whether you like it or not. Do you think there is a parallel with sort of coming out that eventually they will recognize this, or is it different? Well, I think this is a really difficult question Yeah. because it kind of depends on how you define cyborg. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we start looking at almost like a Kinsey-style scale or the like really complicated um, multi-dimensional scale uh, that's being used... Ours would have to be hexadecimal. <laughs> From one to zero to 15. And with some imaginary numbers. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, if I say... Uh, having birth control is a cyborgian mod, 
then I am saying billions of people who would not necessarily accept the identity are cyborgs. I am to some degree thrusting that identity on them. Um, I, again, I think we can lift a little bit from queer culture by saying you don't have to be, uh, you don't have to self-identify as, as gay. If you've occasionally been attracted to same-sex people, you can just be, you know, you with that thing that is there. Mm -hmm. um, depending on, a lot of this just goes back to identity formation. Um, so can people be modified and not be cyborgs? Well, we are modified. We, we live in, you know, we live in 2016 and we are really, all of us, seven and a half billion, it's right there in the number, way, way far from, you know, the natural position. Right. Uh, there's no way you should have this many people on our little blue planet, which kind of means we're all cyborgs. That's right. Okay, so there are people who identify as cyborgs, there are people who may come out as cyborgs, and there are people who just flat out reject the identity because it doesn't suit them, all right? But regardless of that sort of position on this, on this new Kinsey scale, um, many of them may experience discrimination as cyborgs, right? And we can't underestimate that. I mean, look at how quickly Google Glass was rejected, right? Um, I don't think it's a stretch to think that as more people are visibly cyborg, that, that there can be a similar backlash. Like Neil has felt some of it, people think he's recording, right? So we, as more people show up, and people are afraid and they don't understand, they may get thrown out of bars. All the same things that you saw with Google Glass. So Neil, you know, can you talk about some of the stories you've heard about cyborg discrimination or even violence against cyborgs through the Cyborg Foundation? Yeah, but it's, most of these attacks have been not because the person was united to technology, but because they thought they were filming. So it's always, I think all the, the attacks I've heard about are always related to privacy and uh, most of the cyborgs have nothing to do with them. Um, I mean, there's nothing to do with filming or recording. And in my case, the only times I've been attacked was because people thought I was also recording or filming. So it's, uh, it's a misunderstanding that people think that cameras only are used to film, but you can use cameras as a sensor uh, instead. So it's, um, I think this is something that, um, we can't really avoid unless you try to explain that, this. Yeah. So just like, like effeminate gay men may be more of a target because of the way they appear to the public, cyborgs who, have, who make the appearance of recording may be more of a target. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yeah, and I do think um, <clears throat> there's a little bit on us in this community there because uh, we don't want, you know, Nobody wants to have their agency taken away, and the thought of being recorded by somebody who's, that's part of their identity marker, um, you know, it has to end at you. Like, if your modification is somehow impacting someone else's life, they have a right to have a say in that. And, uh, and yeah, I can see why walking into um, a bar with a recording device in people's faces, that's not a place where they're feeling comfortable with that. Um, it is an interesting thing, how do you, if it's not a recording device, how do you signal that? And I think this is a communication problem at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a serious problem, 
especially when you're looking at lots of different augmentation coming in. And the other serious problem I want to just step right up to there is the things that don't look like recording but are. I mean, right in the middle of a societal debate over surveillance. And I think it's appropriate to ask, you know, what are my rights to not be recorded and how are those going to be respected? Because right now, the most normal looking dude can be covered in hidden cameras, walk up, follow me around, put all the stalking material they want to out to millions of people on the internet. That would be called human acting. <laughs> they're, they're concealing their cyborgism. Right. Um, and maybe that's not entirely <laughs> Is okay. that a stretch? You know? <laughs> sure. I, I mean, that's interesting that you put it that way, because right? you're, you're walling off human from cyborg there. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that's a, that's a duality. That it's I'm not a duality, but I was, trying, I was trying to go, like, they're, they, they're, they're doing similar to, like, they are recording, in that way, but because they're trying to hide the recording, then people don't really know that there are cyborgs who are recording. So it's, a, it's a, a, an assimilating or mainstreaming, and that's what I meant by... I actually don't feel human. I don't like being defined as a human, because uh, it kind of separates me from animals, and uh, if, I, if I define myself as animal, it kind of separates me from organisms. So I feel much more comfortable defining myself as an organism, and in my case, I'm a cybernetic organism. So cyborg for me feels that I'm in a wider group where uh, I'm in the same level as a plant or an insect because uh, we're all organisms. So I, I do feel more comfortable not being defined as a human. But I feel cyborg is actually in the same level as an insect in a way. I, um, it's funny, like I feel exactly the opposite, but in a kind of like unsettled language way. Like for me saying human, I think of a human as an animal. And that kind of makes me feel more bound to the natural cycles than if I were to say I'm, you know... An organism. Well, so an animal and organism versus a technological process or an algorithm, something that's discrete. What the difference for me uh, is that um, technological processes are often incredibly discrete and incredibly deterministic. And I live in a non-deterministic natural world. So for me, the language that brings me back to organism is human because it describes the non-deterministic world that I feel part of. <laughs> Did you understand that? No. no, but, uh, no. <laughs> I feel organism is an organism. Just deterministic. <laughs> well, essentially with an algorithm, you put in the same input, you'll always get the same output. Uh, and our technology is algorithmic. With nature, you put in the same input, <laughs> who knows what's going to come out. And that's what I feel more part of. All right, so let's talk a little bit about cyborg rights. Okay, what, what are cyborg rights? What are, what are the rights that you've kind of mapped out? Um, it's just basically having the same rights as anyone else, so not having discrimination. Um, also, the, I think the right that we really focusing on is the right to have surgery because uh, there's lots of um, bicycle committees not accepting the the fact that people want to extend their perception of reality so extending our senses is something not ethical for many bicycle committees and this needs to be addre addressed I think so that's one of the rights we think we should have also having cyborg clinics so clinics that specialize in cyborg surgeries because now at the moment, uh, software developers are somewhere, doctors are somewhere else, psychologists, but if we are united in one space and we have uh, the right to have this cyborg surgery space, then 
uh, we would be able to work better. And in a way, this is still not happening. Okay. And you, you said you, you, you view this augmentation as part of your body, that, that it's an organ. Right. Yes. And I think I've heard you say in other venues that because it's an organ, you feel that we should start to rethink of the way of the costs associated. Like we're not currently allowed to buy organs. We can pay for the procedure, but the organ itself is free. And so can you talk a little bit more about like that augmentation should be free like an organ? Yes, I think it's, it should. It sh you should. You shouldn't look at this as a, a device or a gadget or a, an electronic element. It's a, an organ that is a, 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 should be treated like any other organ. So um, we, the ones that we develop, we actually encourage people to de develop their own organs. So we explain how you can make the organ, and then w what you need. The only cost really is having it surgically implanted in this case, um, which is. Well, in my case, it was the, the surgeon didn't actually want to get paid for the surgery, but I had to pay for the whole uh, renting the room and hiding it from uh, being known, basically. And right. I think, I think that kind of thinking is very important in establishing the framework so that someday if someone pulls on that and yanks it, that that becomes, we consider that as assault against your body and not property damage. Yeah, that was, I filed, uh, I was attacked by, uh, 2011, it was filed as a physical aggression. They broke the, the tip of my antenna, so this is uh, breaking a part of my body. It's not something external. Right. Yes. Uh, I actually really want to mm -hmm. reinforce what you said. You know, when I got mm -hmm. a magnet implanted, uh, the only way we could do it is without anesthetic. Um, so I put my finger in some ice water for a while, and then it was cut open without any anesthesia. Uh, the first incision was too narrow, so it had to be expanded, and then it had to be sutured up at the end. And um, the only thing I was allowed to do there was sit still, grin, and bear it. And um, when I had the magnet taken out by a doctor as you know a, a healing surgery, I had all the, they, they even were like going to hang up a curtain between me and my finger so I didn't even have to look at it. And um, it's a really hypocritical process at that point. You, know, you can't, with these modifications that are non-medical, have anesthetic. Right. Um, well, that, 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 that brings up a whole new topic, which is sort of the dark world of cyborg surgery and cyborg medicine, right? And so. Um, Neil, it really surprised me when I first heard about what you needed to go through in collaboration with a doctor to have this done and that there was some risk to the doctor. What, could you tell them a little bit about that story? About the... The doctor, like, um, what were his conditions for uh, doing this procedure? Well, first I presented the surgery to a bioethical committee and they said, no, after some months, and then from that meeting, I, someone introduced me to a doctor that said he was willing to do the surgery as long as it all remained anonymous. So, and he was willing to do it for free. So I would only have to pay for the material and renting a space, and then not his normal space. No, it was. Um, uh, so we rented the room in a clinic, but the clinic doesn't know what happened. Didn't know what was happening it's in the room. Then in secrecy. Yes, when, we didn't even have a chair to do it. Of? 
What was that? What does this remind you of? Uh, why? It reminds me of early trans surgery and early women's health. <laughs> uh, abortions, early abortions is what it yeah. reminded me of. Yeah, and, you know? and early trans surgery as well. Right. Um, uh, gender reassignment surgery exactly. used to be very dark and still is in much of the world. That's right. So the, the, the overlaps with, with women's health issues, like you mentioned, and transgender with cyborg continue to come back. Yeah, and, yeah. and not just abortions, but also access to birth control, which was illegal even in this country into the not too distant past. And there were some really dodgy things that happened around that and people got very hurt. Right, so just then as and now, we need to find friends in the medical community who are willing to help us, but on their terms that protect them within their professional circles. And we need to educate <clears throat> the medical community about the ways in which this is normal and beneficial. Um, and that's also a process, again, you can pull from the queer community and the trans community where they're, they're doing this education of medical professionals to say, this is okay for us and you need to catch up with us. Uh, and I, one of the things I think we desperately need around modifications, you're starting to see it with tattooing a little bit, is some long-term academic studies of outcomes. It wasn't until there was more studies of, say, trans surgery outcomes when people were like, oh, this is actually a good idea. It's really helping these people. And they're self-reporting in really, really broad numbers that this saved their lives. And I don't think all cyborgian modifications go to that level. I'm sure some do and some do not. But it shouldn't have to be about life or death for you to get something that's going to make your life better. It's not the question if you want an iPhone 6. It shouldn't be the question if you want a new sense. So I'm a big believer in um, full participation, right? So there's about 15 minutes left, actually. And I'd love to be able to incorporate more of you all in the conversation if you have some thoughts. And Quinn can be uh, Phil Donahue here with the microphone. Oh, perfect. Yeah, let's see what you have to say. <clears throat> so what you said about birth control uh, triggered something in me because um, recently I got my fallopian tubes removed as a means of birth control sterilization. And so I had never until that moment thought of that as a cyborgian act, like just removing something. I always thought about it as something that, you know, you're adding something. You're, but really it's just about augmentation and that triggered another thought <clears> the <throat> course as become an adult and gotten more body modifications I've always thought about like what's the thing that's gonna really freak me out about body modifications when I'm like old like what's the thing I'm like why would you do that to yourself and at one point I thought yeah when people just start chopping off limbs just cuz um, maybe that'll be the thing where I like draw the line. But now, like, I have a friend, Charlie, who wants to chop his bum foot off because, you know, he'd rather get an implant. And so um, it's not really a question, it's just more of a, a topic of, like, the idea of removing things as a cyborgian augmentation act rather than, you know, an addition. So anybody have anything to say? I, I do have one thing I really want to say about that, and, and it, it's a little bit about how um, our uh, perceptions of our bodies follows our technology, which is my grandfather had something removed. He had his appendix removed when he was 11, and there was no antibiotic available, so they kept the wound open for six weeks, continuously flushing it with saline. And the doctor said, uh, I've performed this, this surgery successfully over 20 times, but none of my patients have lived when he was coming in with it. 
And if you just think about that for a moment. <laughs> this little 11-year-old kid. And of course, the reason was because when you're doing an abdominal cut like that prior to antibiotics, even if you completely were successful removing all the antibiotics, pretty soon they'd get a massive infection throughout their body and be just as likely as not to die of septicemia in a few weeks. So to some degree, our perception of our rights around this is predicated on a world of antibiotics. Uh, and our perception of what's a good idea is to some degree always predicated on the technologies that are available to me. I think absolutely having something removed is, uh, is kind of a cyborgian thing. Um, I think it can get really complicated when it kind of overlaps with uh, mental health illness issues. There are people who kind of, you have to look at the motivations for modifications to some degree in the medical community, but I actually think that's just as true of plastic surgery, where there is no psych review. And I think that's a terrible mistake people are making. And that's plastic surgery, just as dangerous as any of the stuff we want to do when it comes to medical complications and infection. So there is a double standard there, and I think that's something that we can kind of latch on to to educate. That's, that's good. So you discussed that um, when you had your surgery done, that you had to do it in secret. Since then, have you run into more and more doctors that are that say that they would have facilitated it actually in the public eye and not remain anonymous and such like that. Has it been more acceptable since now that it's been done that you've run into more and more medical, you know, practitioners that will actually acceptably do that? Or do No, we've like received many emails from doctors willing to so willing to do surgeries, but um, not publicly, no. Not publicly at all. No. Not because it's on the fringe side of things and they're you know scared to have their if there's anything goes wrong yes like so that. but you haven't had you haven't had any practitioners come out and say openly that they would just do this in the open eye and well like, we're talking with Japanese the bioethical committee from Japan and mm -hmm. they're open-minded with uh, actually accepting many many surgeries but it's still in talks so it's it's more of not just their image but the community around them that's that might shun them completely yes, yes. out of the field completely or lose I mean, their license completely because of by, something. Yes, because bioethical committees is very complex. If there's 14 doctors, 13 say yes, but one says no, it's not going to happen. So it, it, that's the main because problem. They'll that get from there's that always one or two or three that will. They're accepting uh, of it, but they're just afraid that the community or the, yes. the license at large might be lost. You know, yes, or they simply don't see it necessary, uh, which is something that I don't understand why. I mean, sensing, for example, ultraviolet could save lives. If we could sense ultraviolet, we would be more protective whenever we sensed that, or sensing what's behind us could also uh, allow us to have more protection. Night vision would also save so much energy. We wouldn't have all this artificial light here. If we all had night vision, cities would be dark. The energy, I, we wouldn't be wasting so much energy. The earth would feel better. So many senses that now doctors don't see as necessary, we hope that in, in the f near future they'll start seeing it as actually necessary. So have you not seen, you haven't seen much of a change in the practitioners or panel? Yes, panel. I have, you yes. have just a little bit, since it has been, it's in their face, it's like, oh, it is successful. Yes, they slowly, it's, I, I feel it slowly. Um, it's picking up steam yes. where they'll actually like more and more accept it the more and more it's out there in front of them. Yes, and in some countries more than others. Yeah, of course. Yes, like, I just want to say really quickly that one of the reasons why we're dealing with those bioethics committees is because medicine has a very dark history. And a lot of things were done, really awful things were done to people without any agency. And I think it's hard for society to adapt to the idea that there's a bunch of these things that were done unethically and that that ethical landscape may have changed 
and it's not necessarily horrific medical experiments, which is this, you know, 19th, early 20th century medicine history that they're trying to get away from. So, any more questions? I'm interested kind of in, in the intersection of, like, you, you make the point that that is a, a part of your body, and I know you've had some fight with the government over passports, getting that recognized in that way. And I'm, I'm interested in general, like, when you travel through the airport and whatnot, like, how, how much difficulty do you have getting particularly state and government organizations around the world, I guess, to accept that that is like a, a physical part of your body and not a, a gadget that you're wearing? Um, yeah. Well, at the airport, I show the passport, so then they see that the official image has an antenna. But the, even though they check, they just uh, look at the back to check. They, they don't believe me if I say that it's implied, so they have to look if it goes inside my head or not, and then they just ask lots of, lots, lots of questions. And uh, it's like giving a whole conference at airport security guards. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, I usually go one hour ahead uh, uh, before the, yes. Neil, I want to ask you a question, which is, um, how do children respond to it? Um, they usually point at the antenna, say what it is, I tell them, and then they suddenly accept it. They sec accepted it, and then they ask what the sound of color is, is or whatever. And some children just pointed at it, they said they want one without even knowing what it is. So. And the last time was uh, children start to think it's now it's like kind of a selfie stick as well. So it's, it's a new type of, uh, but yeah, children, I've given talks to primary schools as well. And the questions they ask are in the same level as any other conference I give to adults. They, they ask the same type of questions. It's uh, surprising that they have, um, I don't know, the Q&A with children or with adults is almost the same questions, yeah, usually. Any more questions? All right, so you mentioned that, you know, the children um, write to you and they have cyborg questions. Hmm. But as an organization, you've decided that it's really important on how you communicate about these relatively controversial matters with minors. Yes. Right? So talk about that a little bit. Like how. How, wh what do you say and what do you try to avoid saying because they are minors? I don't know, there's th many different teenagers that write to us because they are developing senses for machines and they say, well, I, want, I don't want to create these senses for machines, I want to create these senses for myself. So could you help me add these senses to my body? And then we just need to tell them that they have to wait until they are at least 18, which is, uh, I don't, in the US I think it's 21 or 18, no? Is there a rule? I think, yeah, we won't interfere with, with families. No, no, you said in the U.S., though. I mean, is I there know. a rule? I mean, that? here yes. you have 21, um, I think. Uh, essentially, the parent has to make all sorts of legal decisions for the child until 18. 18 here yeah. in the U.S. 18. as well. Yeah, so yeah. 18, yeah. And then, yes, yeah, so I guess in the 20s, we'll receive lots of emails from those teenagers that will be 18 in the 20s, and there'll be a kind of a boom of a... a but are children savvy enough? to work within their own communities to mod themselves without their parents giving consent? They're able to create the sensors, but then the cutting themselves and putting it, or actually drilling, this is something that, at least not that I know they're not doing it yet, but they might actually. But, I mean, there's the notorious coming home from the mall with a lip piercing. <laughs> yes. generally where it starts. Yes. Um, but there's also a whole bunch of, uh, there's kind of a, a sub rosa thing children do with technology a lot where they're doing things like they'll have photo vaults that their parents can't see and they'll have an online life that's illegible to their parents in a lot of cases. Um, I, have a, I have a daughter, she'll be 13 in a week. Um, and uh, I've, I've studied somewhat the behavior of kids around 
high-risk activities and also identity formation. And my own personal take on that was to just be willing to hear anything. Because if I'm not, I'm not going to hear anything. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, as far as, as far as that relationship goes, determined children are determined. And I think it's, it's important to be in a position to intercede because children don't always make the right decisions for themselves. And, uh, and to be able to kind of get more knowledge into that process, um, which means be willing to hear what you're going to hear. Because uh, if they're just maybe in a peer group trying to do something, uh, the chances of them not doing it go down if they're in a peer group, and doing it safely may also go down if they have no input but a peer group. So if they're going to like reinvent tattooing at home, I would much rather know that they're thinking of doing that than finding out later. Okay. So kind of moving into wrapping up mode um, and a plan for going forward, Neil, what would you say would be the biggest risk to the cyborg community? Um, I don't know. Dun, 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 I think it's such a, the, the, it's such an, uh, it's a personal decision to, to become a cyborg in my case. So it, it, it's such a, I think, I, I can't really tell. I mean, each person should, should have, um, I think they, they should feel the freedom to decide how they want to sense or perceive the world or how they want the body to, to be and, and then take the, their own decisions. I think it's, it's a, such a personal thing that I... Well, I, I was thinking more external, because do you remember when we met in London at Luke's event, right? Is that, is that Luke right over there? Yes, okay, I can't see you in the dark. But I don't know if you remember, um, in the audience, it seemed like a third of them identified as Luddites, that, that they had kind of like invited themselves to the event. And just in the tone of their questions and feedback, it just never occurred to me that there might be an organized pushback on things cyborg. Do you remember that, the hostility from some of the people there? And I'm wondering, is that, is that a risk that we're underestimating? Yeah, well, we have... Uh, I think the Luddites uh, still existed, in other words, and they were, a third of the room were there, you know? <laughs> there's, uh, we receive emails from uh, extremely religious people that think that what we are doing in particular is against the will of God, that modifying oneself is something uh, that is against uh, nature and against the will of God, and then they are threatening it us because of that and that's the only thing that really uh, bothers me there's these um, people that do um, take it as a, something that is against um, a, re a religion so do you think that I know I'm maybe leading the question here but I'm just I'm, I'm because you might not have thought about it as much before I'm trying to you know get your perspective you know based on the kind of the, the Luddite pushback we got in London and the religious-related emails that you're getting, do you perceive a risk in the form of politics that could come out of this that starts to clamp down on body mods? I mean, making it even more difficult, forcing us to go even more underground. Do you see that as a risk? Or do you think we'll somehow dodge that bullet? I, I don't know. I think, I think 
in general, it's getting more and more accepted to, to, to do this. So I think this, what we felt there, it might slowly... Are we living in a cyborg bubble, though? Right? This is our little bubble. Maybe. Maybe. Right? Or, uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Right? Or I feel in general maybe we are in a transition, but, yeah. but maybe it's still... We still... The, the, the actual people that modify themselves voluntarily uh, with cybernetics is still a very small minority now, but I think it's, it's, it's going to happen. And we are now in a transition where we already merge psychologically with technology, and the next stage is that we'll all accept merging biologically. Quinn, you want to follow up on this or tell us what well, you think is the biggest risk? Well, we are sitting in a state right now which I like to point out has worse access to women's health than most of the Middle East. Uh, and um, we have a cyborg governor. <laughs> um, and yet, <laughs> um, so I think that it's uh, I think it's a complicated question with a lot of different answers. It depends on what it is. It depends on where you are. But also, I don't necessarily think that external crackdown is the biggest danger to a cyborg community. I think staying or fostering isolation from the other communities that have gone before and built tools and built legal action and so on and so forth. Just kind of trying to be, trying to stay in the cyborg bubble and be special little creatures when we're surrounded by people who have worked on women's um, health care issues or have worked on trans issues and have blazed a lot of ground socially and legalistically that we can build on. So I think that's where, I think, I think more than anything we need to align ourselves with people who are interested in the same agency issues that are at heart, whether you're trying to kind of integrate technology into your body or trying to claim rights to a trans identity. Right. All right. I think we're going we're gonna to call it quits there. So um, thank you for your attention and thank you for your, your, your uh, participation today. And we'll see you next year at the world's first international cyborg pride festival. And thank yeah. you, Richard, for having me. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Now, a special thanks to the team at Body Hacks and ISSW for sharing this recording with us. And remember, if you're able to make it out to Austin, Texas for either one of these conventions, please feel free to do so because Body Hacking Con and InfoSec Southwest both are worth the trip, worth the money for the experience, for the networking. So our loyal listeners, if you would like to know more about this journey we take weekly, check out the DMP homepage, dangerousminds.io, or go to facebook.com forward slash dangerousmindspodcast. Keep in mind, events like these are listed on the DMP Google Calendar. And if you have an event that you would like to have added, please email us about it at info at dangerousminds.io. Now, all of us want to thank you for joining us as we explore further the tech and the people behind it within this fastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, implantable technology, as well as information security today. So please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments, and perhaps one day we'll talk to you about the work and or projects you're do exploring and developing. Until next week. Seek the spark. Scientific progression is steamrolling. There's no preventing it going ahead. Now we're intrinsically linked with technology. Biology as we know it is dead.